Thank you, guys. It's a great time of worship as we focus our attention by lending our voices to praise our God. We continue that worship now as we give attention to the Bible, and especially Romans chapter 3. If you would, open to Romans chapter 3, and we are focusing today on verses 21 to 31. Now, there's a stack of mail that always piles up in our house, and I'm thankful for my wife who always draws my attention to it. It's not the good stuff that I open right away, like the books that come, Amazon packages. It's the stuff that usually come from our bank and our mortgage company. All right, one time, my wife faithfully delivered to me a, pack, you know, a stack of mail that I had put off for a while, and there was one envelope that I could see had the word escrow on it. And I did not want to open it because I've been a homeowner long enough to know that sometimes estimates about the escrow on my home have been wrong. And that means that I have more money that I'm responsible to pay. Rare have been the occasion that the banks estimate it the other way, that they've actually made a mistake. Amen. So, I opened up this envelope that said important information about your escrow account, and I came to find a piece of mail that I was just about ready to chuck actually had a check. I was so thankful that I had not ripped it up and thrown it away. Sometimes we get things about our mortgage that come from third parties, and it says important info about your mortgage. And I already know I'm indebted to a certain degree to pay this off for a certain number of years. And I didn't want to think about my debt anymore. But how refreshing it is to actually get a check and for somebody to estimate. We actually made an error in our estimation, and we now have afforded you a little extra money for you to use. How great it is when good news comes when you were expecting bad news, right? Such has been the case so far in the gospel, well, the book. I keep calling this the gospel of Romans. I know it's not called that, but where is the gospel so clearly spelled out time and again, like it is here in Romans, right? But so far, the news from Romans has been pretty bad. Week after week, we focused on the bad news that we actually when we come face to face with the righteousness of God, are in deep debt. Because the righteous God and his holy standard has been abysmally rejected by mankind. Whether you are a hedonist, Pastor Sam has used these three words, a hedonist, a moralist, or a religionist, we all are guilty and indebted to God because of how far we have fallen away from him. Nothing we do can get us back. There's no way that we can be reconciled to God based on our actions. And Romans chapter 3, verse 21 is the turning point in this letter, such that in almost every commentary I read this week, a writer would say, such and such great pastor, when he gets to this section of scripture, writes a big heart around this whole paragraph. Or such and such a pastor has called this the greatest section in all of the Bible. Now we could have, each of us, sections of scripture that we might think are the best in all the Bible. But I think this is a top contender. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, give us the final revelation of the righteousness of God. We're talking today in the title of this message about God's righteousness revealed. God's righteousness revealed. We're going to look at this theme today, which sounds a little wordy, but I hope to explain it. The righteous God has made a righteous way for sinners to receive righteousness. There's another way that many commentators 
have said this, and they would say, the righteous God righteouses unrighteous people. And how in the world can that take place? There's, there's a mystery in this text that is resolved once Paul is done, and it answers two questions. How can any of us receive the righteousness of God? And how can God do this and still remain faithful and true to his own character as the righteous judge and supreme Lord over every life and conscience here on earth? How is this possible? This text tells us how the righteous God has made a righteous way without compromising himself for sinners to receive righteousness. This is good news. One commentator has said, this is the diamond on the black cloth. Beautiful in its portrayal. And how much more beautiful is the gospel and the accomplishments of Jesus for sinners on the black cloth of our depravity, of our sin. So I'll answer three questions today. What has God done to reveal his righteousness? How was God able to do this? And how should I change in response to this righteousness? Point number one is this, which I'll state a little bit differently here. The righteousness of God has come. Look again at verses 21 to 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. We started this series many weeks ago by giving definition to the righteousness of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Let me tell you what the options are whenever we see this phrase, the righteousness of God in Scripture, what it might mean. On the one hand, it could reveal that God in himself is righteous, and this is true. We'll see that in one of the occasions of this reference of the righteousness of God today in Romans 3. It could mean that this is a part of his character, and he is revealing now to the world, I am righteous. And of course, God is. But it could mean something else. It could mean that God reveals the righteous standard that he has that we must live up to. So this could be God's righteous standard for people. And certainly God gives that in his law. The law is the perfect representation of his righteous character that we must live up to. And we found out so far that we can't and we won't. But in the third place, God's revealed righteousness could be the righteous way of righteousing the unrighteous. That's not a word, by the way. Spell check catches me on that every time. And I didn't make it up. I've seen others use it. And it's just such a helpful way to remember what God is doing when it's talking about the, the righteousness of God being manifested now. When it shows up, what should we expect? What is it that he's doing? He has found a way for unrighteous people to be declared righteous in his sight and to do so while still himself being the righteous God and not compromising his righteousness in any way. This is good news. We find out that this righteousness that he has revealed that helps sinners to be declared righteous in his sight comes apart from the law. This is good news. So the standard of this righteousness and what we need to measure up to is no longer the law. One pastor many years ago who's long gone to be with the Lord pulled out a measuring stick and he, he pulled out the tape as far as it would go, and it went to 100 feet. And he said, some, by jumping, might make it 10 feet. Some, maybe they're really good and could go 25. If it was even possible that someone could jump 75 feet, 
which is pretty remarkable if you think about it. It's still not going to make the mark. You're not going to reach the end. But when we talk about God's law, we could throw out that measuring tape because the analogy breaks down. What if you could obey 10% of God's law or 25% of God's law? or 75% of God's law. It might indicate that, well, if you're 75%, you just need 25% of God's help. If you're 25%, you need 75. If you're 10%, you need 90%. But that's not the way this works. The law could not be fulfilled by any one of us. And so what God has done is removed it as the standard. Although he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This law that we talk about in the, in the book of Romans over and over again is the collection of books from Genesis to Deuteronomy and then the prophets, including Moses, all the way up to Isaiah and Jeremiah and those who prophesied in exile. They were witnessing to and talking about a future time when God would reconcile himself to his people and provide a way for their complete salvation. It would not be through their obedience because Israel proved again and again their failure to obey God. And it certainly wouldn't come in the Gentile world because they had no witness of God and their hearts were inclined to evil continually. And the Jewish nation didn't do any better. So something had to come to replace that standard it could never be met. And so God has found a way to display his righteousness to the world apart from his law. We find out that he shows his righteousness, and this righteousness is by faith. Look at the section in Romans 3:22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has made a new standard by which unrighteous people can be counted righteous before God. It is the standard of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished. At the center of this text today, we will see the cross described in three words that we will get to momentarily. Those three words paint a picture of God's magnificence in displaying his righteousness and providing the way of righteousness for all who would come to him. The good news that the longing world needed and could never find in themselves. It happened completely outside of themselves in an activity that God has done. God says, righteousness for you and me cannot come by obedience because our obedience is broken, but righteousness can come by faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is mentioned seven times in these few verses. And Paul begins from here to the end of chapter four, an exploration of how faith has always been the standard of God. Faith is the way into this righteous standing with God. We learn that faith here is not another work. Sometimes we confuse our faith simply with, well, I'm not gonna work for my salvation, but I'm gonna now have faith, thinking that faith is kind of like another work that we do. I've been there before, and I know what that's like. This would be similar to somebody telling you, you know, if you want to be healed, or if you want to see the miraculous in your life, and you're not seeing it, it's because you just don't have enough faith. Some people use those kind of terms. And the effect on me and the effect on anyone who hears that kind of thing is a tendency to think that faith is something that once you stack up enough of it, then maybe then you can be saved or experience the righteousness of God. Faith is not focused on your abilities and how much of it you can achieve. Faith is focused on the object of the faith, not on your activity of faith. Who is the object of the faith? 
It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we look to. There was a Scottish pastor of many generations ago, in the early 1900s, named Robert Murray Machine, and he's well known to say, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. When you have a tendency to be anxious about your standing with God, it's not going to be fixed by looking deeper within yourself to figure out if you are righteous or not. It's not gonna be found by questioning yourself in a prior commitment or a prayer that you said. Your stability in faith is not by examining your faith to see if your faith was genuine enough. The stability of your faith comes when it is anchored on Christ and on who he was and what he did for you. This is the faith that counts for righteousness. And it says that there is no distinction, that all are welcome to have this faith, that all may receive it. Why? Because we see in the text, all of us fall short of the glory of God. There's no distinction between any of us. None of us have achieved the standard of God. So every single one of us need the grace that God shows us. And he says, that the way that we come is by receiving the free justification and grace that he gives. There is a word that appears here, justified. Look in verse 24. It says, and are justified by his grace as a gift. This is an important way that God describes the way that he has righteous unrighteous people. Righteousness and justification, or righteous and justified, are synonyms. The way that they are communicated in Greek and these words that come to us are complementary in their meaning. If you want to know what it, it means to be counted righteous before God, it's the same way of saying that you are justified before God. Justified. It's a legal word. It comes from that legal realm of the courtroom where you stand before the judge and he pronounces about you, even though you are guilty of a crime, that you are free, you are not guilty. But more than that, justified holds within it the meaning, not just that we are pardoned and that our sins are released, that we are free, it means that in the declaration of the judge, we are simultaneously worthy of all the honor and blessings and benefits of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This blessing of justification is the way that God makes or declares unrighteous people to be righteous before him. God declares them to be not guilty and declares them to be as blessed as his son. Jesus Christ. This is good news, but the tension is building. How can God do this? If my kids come and they've just broken my favorite coffee mug, if I just say to them, it's okay, forget about it, it's all right. Or if it was the case where one time a bouncy ball was bouncing mysteriously in the morning and went into my perfectly made cup of coffee, and coffee splashed everywhere, and I just had to leave without coffee that morning. Something has happened. Some reparation needs to be made. And I can't just say on the one hand, forget about it, it's okay. 
No, reparation must be made. But how can we? I didn't make my, my kids make me a new cup of coffee. That would have been ridiculous. Nor do I make them go out and buy me an exact match in the coffee cup in the case that it would break. But the point is, somebody has to pay. Somebody has to make up for the damage. Somebody has to come back and replace what has been damaged or harmed. We could say on the one hand, it's fine, but the damage has been done. So what do we do about that damage? God is so gracious that he gives this justification as a gift. And that's the last thing I want to emphasize here. It's by, by grace. This justified status comes to you and me not by our worthiness, but by God's free and giving nature. This is who God is. When he reveals his righteousness, when he reveals the way that he can make unrighteous people righteous, when he can give them salvation, he does it in the most free and uncalled for ways. None of us asked God to do it this way. None of us begged God for this. As we learned earlier in Romans 3, none of us have sought for God. None of us, even getting together, could be of use to God because we were altogether useless. God looked at the mess we were in and the ways that we rejected him, and he chose out of his abundant giving nature to shower us with grace. Salvation which we could not earn, salvation which we did not ask for, God has freely given it. This is good news. Especially when we read next week in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Not just that he justifies people who were making it and not quite there. Not that he was justifying, declaring righteous those who were doing the best that they could, but just need a little bit of help. He justifies, declares righteous the ungodly. What good news this is for us who are ungodly. His attention was already on us, and his love was set on us when we were ungodly. If you are fearful this morning that God will not accept you until a certain part of your life is fixed, if you are fearful this morning that God will not save you until your life is on the right path, then let me tell you the good news about the real God. He has made a way for the wicked to be declared righteous. This doesn't even mean made righteous. It means in the courtroom scene, as guilty as each of us are, the judge of all creation looks at you and says, wicked though you may be, I don't see wickedness anymore. You are forgiven. And you have received the record of my son whom I love. Enter into the joy of my love. So this is all good news. Now, I don't think it's a stretch to say that each of us here would amen. I've heard some amens, thank you, about this good news because I, I agree with it and I want to be communicating it rightly. But I do have to wonder what would happen to us if we really thought about the depths of this grace and just how deep it goes. When I think about the people in my neighborhood that I marginally know, that I know don't know the Lord, who pay their bills, who love their wives, love their husbands, take care of their kids, mow their lawns, wave at me, have generally respectable lives. And I think that they might go to hell. But then I think of someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, convicted and imprisoned in 1991 for killing 17 men and boys in the most horrific ways imaginable, and subsequently beaten to death by a fellow inmate once he was in prison. 
But before he died, Jeffrey Dahmer testified through the witness of a pastor who went in to speak with him time and time again that he had repented of his sins and asked Jesus to save him. How do you feel that your neighbors who are respectful, who are kind, who would go out of their way to help you, would never harm a child or even a fly, might go to hell while Jeffrey Dahmer, with the gruesome acts that he committed, may be in heaven right now singing the praises of Jesus Christ. If there's anything in you that still wrestles with a feeling that that's not, that doesn't seem right, well, join the club. It's a tension that I feel, but it illustrates the depth of God's grace where you may think there's a limit to how gracious you may be, there is no limit to how gracious God would be. The next section of scripture shows us just how gracious he is. And it answers that second question, how can God do this act of declaring righteous, wicked people and still remain righteous himself? And the spotlight comes directly onto the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's shown to us in three words that Paul says. The first word in verse 24 is redemption. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Where justified was a legal term, declaring you to be innocent and to be fully worthy of all of the blessings of God, Redemption is an economic term. It's a marketplace term. It describes a purchase that was made. In this case, it was used often for the people of Israel in describing their own journey as slaves out of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. And they would describe it as their redemption. They would say, that there was a time when they were slaves, but God redeemed them out of Egypt and took them into the land of his promise. For us, what was our slavery? The slavery was not in terms of an earthly marketplace, although that has been an expression of our slavery. Our deeper slavery is slavery to sin. God through Christ and the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through the public act of the cross, communicated to the principalities and powers and to the fallen world that we are now bought at a price, that we have been purchased by God, that we are no longer slaves, but we are now the children of God. Colossians, that book that Paul wrote later on, describes it as a transfer from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We are now no longer children of darkness, but people of light. God has done this. How? Through the redemption, the purchasing of our, of our lives, away from slavery that is in Christ Jesus. If we want to know how we can be free from that slavery and even the siren call that still appeals to our flesh to go back into that slavery, then it is in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no other way. You cannot escape the slavery of sin by white-knuckling it through times of temptation. It is through the redemption of Jesus Christ's blood applied to you. This frees you from the grip of sin. Do you want to be free today? You need to be redeemed. You need to be purchased back by God, and he's already done it. Will you believe it? Will you look to Jesus who is on the cross to transfer you from the slavery to your lusts and sins to him? 
But deeper than that is the next word, propitiation. Propitiation. Challenging word to say. Look at verse 25. God has done this work in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Another reference to faith. Here's another thing that we must hold on to, not measured by the amount of faith that we have, but the object of it. What do we focus on by faith? That Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. What is propitiation? Well, this term, unlike justification, which is a legal term, and redemption, which is an economic or marketplace term, this is a religious term. And it has something to do with satisfying someone's anger toward you. Like in this sentence, the husband propitiated his wife by bringing her flowers. Sometimes that works. In the religious realm, though, it would often mean that the pagans would cut themselves or they would bring fruits or vegetables to lay on the altar or they would pass their own children through the mouth of the idol into the fire. These are ways that they would seek to propitiate the gods whom they rightly understood to be capricious, unreliable, reactionary. Their anger would snap for no reason. They would seemingly withhold rain when they needed rain. Just out of their willfulness against the humans and in order for the humans to get the gods to be satisfied so that they would open up the heavens again and let it rain, they would do all of those things. In pagan religion, the propitiation would always happen by the people towards the God and it would continually have to be done because the gods were never satisfied. What does this word propitiation tell us about the real God? He was angry, wrathful towards sinners. God was full of wrath towards us in our sin. And some people don't like that. They don't like the idea of God being wrathful or a word that tips us off to that reality. There are some people who, in translating the scriptures, took the word out entirely. I know in two Bibles that we typically don't use here, the word propitiation was changed for the word expiation. Expiation just means covered sins. But propitiation means covering sins by satisfying the wrath of God. Some people I've heard this week, Jake was telling me about this, that when people sing in Christ alone, there are some places that sing in Christ alone and take out the third verse where it says, upon that cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid, right? Some people don't like that verse, so they don't sing it. We sing that here because it's our hope. Some things that we need to understand about propitiation. God was angry with you and me because of our sin. He was. He was wrathful toward us. Romans 1 and Romans 2 tells us that that wrath could not be deflected or ignored. It had to go somewhere. You and I were the targets of God's wrath on earth. From the time we were born until the time we were redeemed, we were the objects of his wrath. Secondly, we could not satisfy God's wrath in any way. God is not like the pagan gods who would lash out at people for the, the pettiest of reasons. God's wrath is not an uncontrolled snap in a moment of passion. God's wrath is controlled. God's wrath is patient. 
and it's directed only towards sin. Not towards someone he doesn't like for reasons apart from sin, only for sin. God himself had to take care of that wrath. So God, knowing that we could not endure the wrath of God and survive, himself in Christ on the cross bore the full brunt of that wrath. There's a sense in which you and I are blocked at that cross when we come and stand at the foot of it so that as God pours down his wrath, every bit of it hits Christ and is absorbed in his holy being. And it all is poured out generation after generation of sin. Those in the Old Testament who sacrificed their children to the fires of Moloch. Those who abandoned their wives or husbands to pursue others. Those who killed in the name of their own anger. The Jeffrey Dahmers of the 20th century. All poured out on Jesus at the cross. Wave after wave after wave of wrath until it was all absorbed and nothing was left. This is the hope that we have, that God himself bore his own wrath on the cross. Some people say that this is divine child abuse and they reject it out of hand from the scriptures. But how could it be divine child abuse when God the Father himself knew what was happening and God the Son willingly submitted to it, working together and in the power of the Spirit took our sin to the cross so that every bit of it was nailed there, punished out on Christ, and we don't have to bear that weight of sin anymore. This is the power of the cross. This is the good news about how people like you and me, wicked as, as we are, can be counted righteous before God and not have to worry about our sin anymore. We can be forgiven and we can receive the full credit of Christ's righteousness. This is good news. But there's one more thing that we need to to learn about the cross, it was a redemption, it was a propitiation, but it was also a demonstration. And if you look down at verses 25 to 26, we see there that God put forth or put forward as a propitiation by his blood, Jesus, to be received by faith. Now this, this act, this public propitiation was to show God's righteousness. That word show is a Greek word that can mean demonstrate. This was God's showcase to answer the question of how he, the righteous judge, could pass over the sins of all humanity and in that moment of time be still the holy righteous judge and share his righteousness with unworthy people and still be righteous. You can't just say to somebody who has murdered another person, it's okay. You can be forgiven and go free. Someone has to pay for it. And God likewise can't just excuse all human sin. It has to be paid for. And he said, this is what the cross demonstrated. The effects were our redemption, our propitiation, and God's propitiation toward us, who was so wrathful toward us. There's no wrath anymore. And God says that public display was the demonstration of how God had looked over former sins from the Old Testament and how he could do that and still at the present time be just. How could God forgive all those sins from the book of Genesis on until that moment at the cross? It's not because 
he was flippant or ignored sin, it's because he was patient and knew that the full weight of those sins would be paid for. Somebody's got to pay. And that that would be paid for by Jesus and his death on the cross. This is how God could be just. He punishes sin, but how he could likewise be the justifier of the ungodly. This is the good news, and the demonstration of the cross is the place to look for how unrighteous people can be counted righteous before God, how their lives can be declared free and righteous before him, even though in our experience we know that we are not. How can this be? Because God is simultaneously just and the justifier of the ungodly. This is good news. So this present time of grace, as we see down in verse 26, continues right now, even this morning. And I want to conclude this morning by telling you some things you need to know that will help you to practically respond to this message. I want to look at, in point three, practical responses to this righteousness. Now, verses 27 to 31 introduce three questions that go back to what Paul was doing in chapter 3 and previously in chapter 2. He has this imaginary Jewish opponent who's just heard what he said. And this is similar to someone that I heard on the radio the other day. There's, uh, when I drive here in the morning, there's always this show. Um, it's this guy who has this deep baritone voice. I can't remember his name. Steve something. Anyway, he has a question and answer time. And somebody wrote him a question, and he read it online. And it said, you know, I, I spend time with, this was an unbeliever, I spend time with Christians, and I really am dissatisfied with what I see happening in their lives. They claim that they are free. They claim that Jesus has died for them and that they don't have to pay for their sins anymore. And now they're free to, to live uh, for him, but they're, they're still hypocritical. They're still sinning. And I would rather them have some other standard by which they live rather than this just freedom that they express. Is that really the message of Christianity? And the guy said online, you know, while we appreciate this guy and his dedication to making sure he's getting things right, the bad news for him is this really is the message. Jesus has died to free us from the effects of our sin and to forgive us completely of all that sin and to give us a credited record of righteousness now. Now, Paul would have had his own opponents back in the day saying, Paul, are you serious about that? Is it really true what you're saying? And Paul would have argued with that opponent and he would have answered the question, is there really no claim that we can have now that anything we do can be contributed to the salvation? Really, there's no room for boasting? And Paul says, no, no room for boasting. So in the first place, he says, no boasting but believing. What becomes of boasting? 27, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. When he says law of faith, he's not introducing a new law to keep. He's just saying, this is how it works with God now. This is a principle. You can substitute principle for law in that section. There's a new principle about how to relate to God. And it's, it's, it's apart from the law. But hey, the law and the prophets spoke about it all that time. It's the principle of faith. You relate to God by faith. But there's still something in us that would like to contribute something to our salvation I came across this quote from a Martin Luther sermon. Um, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, preached a message called The Son, A Conclusion of the Christian Life. And he was relating to people about this area of difficulty that we have. We know we're not supposed to boast in our works, but there's something in us that still wants to boast about our part in our relationship with God. He says, don't ask God to be just. Don't ask him to be fair. You don't want God to be fair. 
What do you want? You want God to be merciful. You want his grace, right? That's verses 21 to 26. But let anyone try this, says Luther, and he will see and experience how exceedingly hard and bitter it is for a man who all his life has been mired in his work's righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all his heart rise up through faith in the one mediator. I myself have been preaching and cultivating grace for almost 20 years, and still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal so with God that I may contribute something so that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. I'm so thankful for the honesty of Luther in moments like that. I appreciate him because I feel these things. I mean, if you, if you don't, praise God. But there is some old clinging dirt in our hearts, to use that phrase from Luther, that would still try to find some way that we could commend ourselves to God as being worthy of the salvation we've received. Often, I find that it comes after a sin in a believer's life. It's evidenced by either we feel we must achieve some standard of repentance or we must stack up enough good works in order to find ourselves back in the right standing with God. Here's the reality that eliminates that need to bring to God our accomplishments in any way, even of the good things that we do. We stand on the finished work of Christ. Our belief is not that we somehow now, maybe after 10 years or 20 years or 30 years, are now worthy of the salvation. Anything on that side of salvation reflects back on the work that was done when God initially declared about you, if this is true for you today, that you are now righteous. Your experience was not righteous, but embedded in that declaration was God's determination for you to reflect his son. And any grace that you've seen since that time is God at work in you. Rest on the finished work of Jesus this morning. Don't boast about what you do or have not done. Humble unity, verses 29 to 30. More of this will be spelled out next week as the story of Abraham is shared. Paul asks the question, is God the God of the Jews only? No, he's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. What does this tell us? That there is no distinction that there's no partiality, that anyone and everyone can come. This is our unity around the cross of Christ, where we find in our culture right now various sources of disunity. I continue to preach that the church should be the one place where we come and our unity is based not around who our favorite political commentator is, who our favorite activist is, who our favorite movie stars are, our unity is in Christ. Regardless of your gender, your color, your station in life, none of those things matter at the cross. It doesn't mean that they are obliterated. It means that they're full glory for a man or a woman or for those with different skin pigmentations or those from different nationalities or jobs that those things shine with their brilliance in the places where God has you by his creation and appointment and now redemption to be in one new family. This is remarkable. We are united at the foot of the cross. And someday in heaven, we're going to be surprised to see some people there, maybe Jeffrey Dahmer. And some people are going to be surprised to see you and me there. But by the grace of God, we will get there, not by our works and not by any other point of identification. And finally, an application of loving obedience, and we need to close. Paul answers 
what seems like a doozy of a topic to throw into this discussion in this text in just a few short verses, and he provides no commentary. He just asks in verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And it seems like the answer would be, yes, please, it's done us no good. It didn't save us, we couldn't keep it, and now we have faith in Jesus who's, who's completely obeyed in every way. <laughs> but Paul says, by no means. So his answer is not yes, it's no. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And it, it may seem to reverse all that has just come, but I think it's summarized in John 14, 15, in these words of Jesus, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. All right, this is the Lord's way of saying, humble faith and trust in me will result in hearts that are eager to obey what I say. Right? This is a matter of sanctification and how God takes people who are declared righteous and helps them grow in godliness over time. It's good news for us that what we were will not be what we continue to become by the grace of God. And that the Jesus whom we love and adore, who was righteous, who was humble, who loved God and loved people, and who sinners flocked to and loved to hang out with, we can become like that. We can become those people by the power of God at work producing that righteousness out of our declared righteous state. So in conclusion today, we get to sing of this great gift of grace in Jesus, our Redeemer. I invite the team to come back up. As we sing, listen for these themes from Romans 3. And if you know today that you have been declared righteous, then sing out with confidence. If you have not, or if you know today that you are not yet declared righteous before God, but heard something in this text today that draws you to Jesus, pray receiving that free gift of righteousness from him today. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage of scripture, this glorious jewel of the gospel laid out over the blackness of our sin and how mighty you are. Help us to sing now in reflection on these things. Help us to praise you. May our hearts be ready to lend our voices to the testament of how wonderful our Savior is. It's in his name I pray, amen.